Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're going to bring you the story of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. It's a wild ride, so grab your cocktail and buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. another round of bartending with Sloan. Today we are going to make the the fruit gushers shot. It would also, I feel like it would be a better drink than a shot because it's really super sweet and it is another one that you could customize according to your preference. But for the sake of the shot, this is how we did it. Uh, Equal parts all the way across the board. We always split our shots into two. So I'm going to give you the reference for one shot but whenever you look on social media, it's going to be double the, the amount because Trish and I split this. <laughs> but for one person, for one shot, you're going to do a half ounce of blue carousel, a half ounce of watermelon pucker, a half ounce of tequila, and then a half ounce of lemonade. What I did for my lemonade is I did half parts of lemon juice, half parts of simple syrup, or just buy lemonade and use lemonade. Either way whatever works. Pour all of that over ice, shake it, strain it into your shot glass, shoot it, and it tastes like freaking Kool-Aid. It tastes like a fruit gusher melted down into a drink. It's really good, but it is very sweet, like I said, so I do feel like it would make a good drink. You could pour it over ice and top it off with more lemonade or Sprite, whatever your preference is. Regardless of how you enjoy this one, it's going to be delicious goes down really smooth and we hope you enjoy it all right so as we said today we are doing the oklahoma girl scout murders this is i feel like a very well-known case if you are part of the true crime community yeah you have definitely heard somebody cover it at one point in time and it's one that i definitely like really kind of connect to because I was a Girl Scout. I went to Girl Scout camp. But I was a brownie. I didn't make it <laughs> further than that. I was a brownie. I I was all the way up to like a junior, I think. I don't remember. It was it was a while ago. But um I was definitely in Girl Scouts for a very long time. And my sister lives in Oklahoma. And it started getting brought up in the news. And I guess she just hadn't really heard of it. Mm-hmm. Or she just forgot that she's heard of it. So she sent me the article. I was like, oh, yeah, I know all about that. And then, like, she sent me another, like, thing saying that the actual killer was going to be revealed. So I was like, well... Gotta research this for the podcast, then. Right. Even though I know it, but still, I wanted to get all the details. Mm-hmm. Trish told me that somebody had been named, and I was like, I'm going to wait for you to name him to me for me to find out. So I have not heard anything about this. I've been avoiding the news about it. Ugh, it's 
I'm so excited that they've finally been able to give these girls' families, like, the justice they deserve. Mm -hmm. But it's also, when I tell you who it is, you're going to be like, ah. <laughs> so, we will get into this. And like we said, this is the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. And this takes place all the way back in 1977. So, the morning of June 13th, 1977 in Oklahoma is a day that many will never forget. That morning at Camp Scott, three Girl Scouts ages 8 to 10 were found sexually molested and murdered. Their bodies had been found on a trail leading to the showers about 150 yards from their tent. These murders are every parent's worst nightmare, and you also have to ask, how could this happen? Which, like I said, I went to Girl Scout camp for years. Years! I don't know, like, I've never visited this camp. I don't know how it compares to, like, where I went, but, like, there were so many safety measures put into place by the time I started going, but that could also be because of what happened here. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's crazy. What's also crazy is the fact that my, my sister's um, partner could have been at camp when this happened. If she was a Girl Scout. Mm -hmm. So like that hits close to home too. Yeah. Because you hear like, 1977 you're like oh that was so long ago but you gotta think for me that was 11 years before i was born mm -hmm. so it's really not that far ago um so like i said you have to ask how this could happen and like were there any warning signs anything that like kind of made people think oh should, maybe we should be a little more, like, on edge. Or maybe we should, like, delay this whole camp thing. Well, during an on-site training session less than two months before, a counselor discovered that her belongings had been gone through and her donuts had been stolen. One, you don't touch my food. Unless, Amen. <laughs> unless I'm sharing my food with you. Do not touch my food. Amen. They call me the Snickers commercial in our friends group. Yes. <laughs> so, along with, like, the donuts being stolen, so the box is left behind. Just the donuts that were taken, which I think would piss me off more. <laughs> because you didn't even take the full thing. You left you me an empty box. You didn't get rid of the trash. <laughs> that sounds like a man. As yes. somebody that lives with a man, that sounds like a man. <laughs> Nate will eat. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about. <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> Let's talk about the one time that I locked this man out for eating my macaroni and cheese. <laughs> and I threatened to divorce him. 
because it was the last portion of macaroni and cheese. And this isn't just any macaroni and cheese. Like, okay, we live in the South and in the South, I'm just going to say it. Black people cook the best, the yeah. best of the fucking best. And there's this man that we work with Mario and he makes the best macaroni and cheese. Mm. And I beg for it year round, literally year round. I beg for this shit. It's his mama's recipe. And she came in one time to eat at the bar and when she told me she was Mario's mom, I was like, you're the one with the mac and cheese recipe. And she goes, yeah. I was like, we love that stuff. We love you, ma'am. Bow at your feet. Delicious. So I beg for this stuff year round. He was bringing it for the Christmas party. And he literally made like triple batch just so we could take some <laughs> home with us. And I went to the back and I got like two full to go boxes worth to take home with me. And so there was this one night, the weekends in the restaurant industry are always the hardest. It just is what it is. It's like the high end of our week. And it was a Sunday night and I was coming home. I was so excited about the macaroni and cheese. There was one portion left in the fridge and I came home. I looked in the fridge. It wasn't there. My husband left the empty box next to the trash can. He didn't even throw the evidence away. He left the box there to taunt me. And that's not what he was doing. I know I'm being dramatic, but that's what it felt like. He was taunting me over my macaroni and cheese. So I sent a picture to him. I put a chair against the door, locked his ass out. Trish was over laughing her ass off at me the whole time. And I was like, you don't understand. This man ate my macaroni and cheese. Like it was mine. I brought it home. I begged for it for a year and he ate the last portion. I'm so dramatic right now and upset. I just kicked the door open. I'm sorry if y'all heard that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we were saying we were serious about food and I just proved my point. <laughs> oh gosh. So getting back to our story. So she had apparently a box of donuts in her tent and whoever had come in and gone through her stuff took the donuts, left the box, and inside the box was a handwritten note that stated in capital letters, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> Don't be suspicious. So... This is a camp where little girls are coming to stay. You would think that this note would be taken seriously. That wasn't the case. So, I've read, like, two conflicting, like, counts of this. Mm -hmm. Like, one says that the director of the camp session treated this note as a prank and threw it out. Another one said that the counselor was like, oh, this is a prank and didn't, like, turn it in. So, I don't know, because you can literally read so many articles where it either goes with the counselor or the yeah. director. So, either way, this note was not, like, taken seriously. So, on the night of June 12th, 1977, a storm came down on Locust Grove, Oklahoma, which is where this camp is located. The young Girl Scouts rushed into their tents for cover. There were other activities that had been planned, but due to the weather after dinner, the campers were sent to their tent to write letters home. This was also their first night, like, at the camp. 
They had not even been there for a day. So, yeah. My next little note. It was their first night at Camp Scott for what was to be a two-week session. The three girls were sharing a tent. This was tent eight. It was the furthest from the counselor tent in the Kiowa unit is what I think it's how it's pronounced. K-I-O-W-A. It was also partially obscured by the showers for the camp. So if you've never been to like a Girl Scout camp, it's not like every like little campsite has its own shower. There's usually like one shower that's kind of in like a middle ground area for like a certain like section. So like you're sharing these showers with maybe three or four other campsites. And apparently the showers happen to be close to this mm-hmm. particular one. Now these tents were made to look like cabins with four cots inside with a flap serving as a door. So anybody can just walk into these tents. It's not like it's you have to really physically open. You flip a tent flap. So like I said, there were three girls in this tent. There were supposed there was supposed to be a fourth, but due to a scheduling error, this camper was set to like arrive the next day. Mm-hmm. Which lucky her, right? If you're, I'm sure that girl is like counting her lucky stars to this day. Yeah, because you gotta think if she was there, it would be four instead of three. So, Lori Farmer, who was one of the girls murdered, was the youngest camper at the camp, but was said to be mature for her age. She was so excited to write home to her family, she told them about her new friends and roommates. Michelle Goose? Gosh? I should have looked up how to say her last name. Sorry. She was another one of the victims. She had attended the camp the year prior. She was shy and had a love of plants. Before going to camp, she told her mother to take care of her plants. Just breaks your heart. Breaks your heart. I can't... I can't associate. I have a black thumb. (laughs) Denise Milner. She was the third victim had sold enough Girl Scout cookies to go to camp with her friends. She was excited to go to camp. She was a straight-A student who had been admitted into Tulsa, like a school in Tulsa that was for bright students. Even though she was excited to go to camp with her friends, all of her friends had backed out at the last minute, but she decided she was still going to go. If you're those friends, you're either A, you probably have mixed feelings because you're probably like, Thank that goodness. could have been me. And two, you're probably like, I left my friend to be murdered. Yeah. So even though she was excited to go to camp, she was also very like attached to her mother. And before she boarded the bus to be bused away to this camp, she was crying and was sad about leaving her mom and her five-year-old sister. 
after writing the letters home, they gathered for a story time. Denise, again, was upset and asked to call her mom. Which, again, she's thinks she is, like, nine years old at this time. Can, can relate. I definitely remember the first time I stayed away from my parents. And I was just like... And that it was literally at a friend's house. It wasn't even like I was, you know, miles and miles away. <clears throat> One of the counselors named D. Elder comforted her and got her to agree to wait till the next morning to call home. Meanwhile, a counselor in another unit, the Comanche unit, state like stared out into the night and saw movement in the woods. A dim light was seen moving towards the Kiowa unit. So if you're that counselor, the guilt that you have probably lived with for years, I can't even imagine. But then again, if you had done something, like, what, what would you do? Like, yeah. what could you do? As with most first nights at camp, campers were very excited. At around midnight, Carla with Wilhite, I think is how it said, heard campers giggling out by the latrine, got up to take them back to their beds. And again, at 1.30, she was woken by campers giggling in tent six from her door. She shone a flashlight at their tent and yelled at them to go to bed. Her and another counselor, D, walked over to the tent to get the girls to quiet down. Carla said in the darkness behind, behind tents one and two, she heard a low guttural sound or a moan coming from the woods. She thought it was an animal, and when she shone like her flashlight in that direction, the sound just stopped. Just like, you know, a wild animal usually does. It's like shit. I've been, I've been seen. Yeah, heard, caught, whatever. She turned around to walk back to her tent, and when she did, the sound started again. So she turned again with her light shining in the direction and walked back toward the sound, and it stopped again. Carla later said, when back in her tent, trying to fall asleep, she heard the sound again. A camper in tent number seven said the same. At the same time, she saw a light approaching the tent. As the light flooded the entryway, they said that they saw a male figure in the doorway, but as soon as it appeared, it disappeared, closing the flap behind him. One camper said they heard a scream, and another said they heard someone crying for their mama. Oh, right. One guess who that was. It's just like... Late that night, Lori Lee Farmer... Framer? Yeah, Farmer. Farmer. Sorry. So, Lori Lee Farmer, who was 8. Doris Denise Milner, who was 10. Michelle Heather Goosh, was 9. Were sex sexually molested and murdered and taken from their tent. So, 
police later had to narrow down the time frame and determine that between 2 and 4 a.m. was the time of the murders. So remember, at around 1.30 is when the one counselor got up and got their the one set of girls back to their tent. And then just a little while later is when her and another one basically went to tell another tent to quiet down. And then she heard noises. So was that involving the girls or was that not? Yeah. Police believe that one or a group of people came into the tent and murdered and moved the girls. Around 6 a.m. the next morning, Carla Wilhite, the camp counselor, on her way to the shower, saw three sleeping bags a little ways from her tent. When she approached, she saw that three sleeping bags were scattered across the ground, two were zipped shut, and one was open. By 7.30, several members of local law enforcement were on the scene. By 10 a.m., Camp Scott is evacuated without the campers knowing why they are headed home. If you're there for a two-week thing, you've only been there for one night, and you're being bussed home. As a kid, I would be severely confused and pouting and throwing a temper tantrum, to be honest. Meanwhile, these parents have been contacted and told... There's been a mishap at the camp. You need to meet at the, like, pickup site to get your children. And that's basically what you're told. You're not, they weren't told, like, hey, somebody's been murdered. It was, there's been a mishap. So, you're, you understand these parents have to be in a panic. And you're just praying and hoping like your child gets off the bus because if there's a mishap, what has happened? Especially if you're like saying, hey, these girls have to get home. Either yeah. something happened with a counselor or something happened with a camper. And like the Girl Scouts have everything like under control as far as like the camper's families go. Investigators were faced with a gruesome scene. The campsite that this happened at is located in the furthest point of Camp Scott. The trail that led to the campsite also led to the back gate of the camp. Although both the front and back gates get locked, they aren't guarded and they're (laughs) not that hard to get around either. There is also no fence around the camp. This made it easy for anyone to get in and out of the camp, along with the gruesome scene, investigators found several pieces of evidence. Um, where's that? Okay. A large red flashlight was found on top of the girl, one of the girl's bodies. A fingerprint was discovered on the lens and basically, I don't know if this is part of what was used to identify the killer, but at the time of like the when this article that I used came out, that fingerprint had led to, like, no identification whatsoever. Duct tape had been used on the girls, and a roll of it was found near the, their bodies. 
Also nearby was rope, a pair of women's eyeglasses, and a glasses case. They said the flashlight had been manipulated in more ways than one. Duct tape had been used to cover the lens, so only one beam of light could shine through. Newspaper had been shoved inside to keep the batteries from rattling. Which, I hate to say it, but that's kind of ingenious. The newspaper inside was from April 17, 1977, from an edition of Tulsa World, pages 5 through 12, section C. And the, this and the women's eyeglasses would later become very important. Officers entered tent number 8, where they were met with another gruesome scene. Blood was found on the tent flap, parts of the floor and mattresses, and parts of the tent were even broken. A shoe print was found in the blood on the floor, and about the only place that there was no blood was the right side of the tent where the empty cot sat. They believed that Lori and Michelle were killed in the tent and that Denise was carried or made to walk where the girls were found. Near the perimeter of the camp, close to the fence line, a crowbar and beer balls were found. In the days following the investigation, police were led to many locations, places like nearby caves and a burglarized ranch. This ranch was Sharoff, I think is how it's said. Sharoff Ranch, which was owned by Jack Sharoff. And it was about a mile from the camp. Jack told police that food was stolen along with tape, rope, and beer. The rope was similar to that found near the bodies. And in the caves by the camp, authorities found grocery items, newspapers from the same Tulsa World edition, two photographs and duct tape matching the kind found on the girls' bodies. It was evident that someone had been hiding out there. They also found a note written on the cave wall, and it said the killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. So not only were you hiding out there, but you knew that they would be able to trace it back, so then you're like, I'll leave this taunting message. That or you have some sick fuck that was like, oh, I bet you'll eventually end up here. Sheriff Glenn Weaver who had been assigned to the case, told media he was favoring a theory. He believed one person, a man, was responsible for the murders. Even more compelling, the photos found in the cave, they believed, had been developed by a man while he served time in Granite Reformatory. The prime suspect was Jean Leroy Hart. Hart was born in Locust Grove, Oklahoma in November of 1943. Remember, Locust Grove is where this camp is located, so you have very good knowledge of all these areas. He was a football star growing up, but police also knew him for his deviant tendencies and criminal behavior. In June of 1966, 
Hart actually abducted two young pregnant women outside of Tulsa, like at a nightclub in the parking lot, and drove them to Mays County. He brutally raped and sodomized these women. Important to note, the two women wore eyeglasses and both survived. A fellow inmate later told police Hart had poor eyesight and instead of going to the doctor, he just stole eyeglasses. Sir, one, those are expensive. Two, stop being broke and go and get you some eyeglasses yourself. Don't be raping women to take eyeglasses. After the rape of these two women, he was later caught and charged, but was released on parole just a few months later. Of course. Of course, because, you know, why would the justice system change at all? Ugh. He, be- he began his career as a burglar. He would break into homes while the owners were home and asleep. It wasn't until the fourth burglary that he came that this all came to light. This was because he happened to break into a Tulsa police officer's home. That's why I like to say karma, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, karma and just, you know, luck of the draw. So, eventually he was charged with the four burglaries. And because he was on parole, the, co- the court sentenced him with consecutive sentences of roughly 90 years, giving him roughly 350 years total. In 1973, he was moved to Mays County Jail for a hearing when he escaped, but was caught quickly by police only to escape again. This time, it took police longer to catch him, obviously. At the time of the murders, Hart was still out of custody, and the evidence made it poignant that police needed to find him. Throughout the search, authorities contradicted themselves. Weaver actually told media at one point that the murder weapon had been found when it had, in fact, not been found. What a shock. A strange thing about the search is an ominous threat was made. Three tracking dogs were brought in and a local medicine man supposedly placed a curse on the dogs. Starting, like, not sorry. He placed a curse on the dogs saying that all three would die. What did they do to you? Right? So, one of the dogs actually died of exhaustion. A second ran into traffic and was hit by a car. And only one of the dogs actually ended up surviving. Leave the poor puppies alone. Mm-hmm. Please. I'm like, every time I, like, dive into the facts of this case, I was like, you got little girls that have just been, like, murdered. And then you got these freaking dogs that did nothing. They're just trying to be good boys or girls. And find the killer. And you got some crazy killing them off. Pretty much. On April 6, 1978, 10 months after the search for Hart, he was finally apprehended. He was hiding out in Cookson Hills at a residence about 45 miles from Camp Scott. The trial revealed surprising info to the public, but most shocking was the outcome of the trial itself. 
the end of March 1979, after brief deliberation, Hart was acquitted of the murders. Hart did return to jail to serve the rest of his 305-year prison sentence, and a few months later, he died of a heart attack. For decades, this case remained unsolved, and in 1996, a private investigator named Ted LaTurner got a petition to have Mays County Grand Jury look at leads he'd found. He had a witness that named three separate suspects, none of which were Hart. The witness later redacted their statement, but one of his suspects did have a very compelling place, like piece mm-hmm. of like information, basically. Bill Stevens, who had a run-in with Malal before he was seen near the camp on the morning of the murders at a cafe with blood on his boots. Witnesses say he acted strangely. Also, within months of the murders, he was arrested on similar rape and kidnapping charges. During Hart's trial, a woman from Okmulgee? I should have asked my sister how to say these words, man. (laughs) From Okmulgee said the flashlight found belonged to Stevens. Even though he was named a tr- at trial, DNA didn't match Stevens. In 1989, a sample was submitted to the FBI for testing, but because of degradation, they were unable to get a full DNA profile, but they did get a partial. The substance that was tested was actually semen found on a pillowcase inside Michelle's sleeping bag. Authorities were unable to exclude Hart as a contributor. So after these murders happened, Camp Scott was actually closed and never reopened. I believe it. Which, if I guess if you go today, like, you can tell it was a camp. It's very overgrown in that, but there's still, like, the structures around and stuff. Which I'm sure is a very um, creepy feeling. I don't think it's really open to the public. It's probably considered private property. So if you're caught there, you probably would get in trouble. So I do not suggest you going yourself. But just know that the area is still just kind of a vacant area. So, following, like, all this and not really having the justice that they wanted, some of the family members of the girls actually did go on to do some, like, really great things. Michelle's father, Richard Good, we'll just say G, because I don't want to keep butchering this last name, worked to create the Oklahoma Victims Compensation Board. The goal was to assist with the financial burden of violent crime victims. He also helped pass the Oklahoma Victims Bill of Rights to protect the rights of the victims no less vigorously than those of the accused. 
which I feel like is common sense, and the fact that you need a Bill of Rights for that is just bullshit. Sherry Farmer founded the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children Support Group. And for, like, years, that's just kind of where the case stood. It remained unsolved, and the investigators kept asking, you know, who could possibly have killed these girls. And that was up until now, which Wednesday, May 4th, 2022, police announced they had identified the 1977 murder of these girls. Investigators say recent DNA testing has ruled out every suspect except for one. Mays County Sheriff Mike Reed has spent the last nine years digging into this case after Lori Farmer's parents asked him to give it a fresh look. Reed said every piece of evidence, every piece of DNA evidence has been accounted for and there is no doubt in his mind who the killer is. The evidence points to none other than Jean Leroy Hart. You don't fucking say. Which I'm so glad that they were able to finally pin it, but also it's such bullshit that it's his because of the way our system is. And it's a good reason for this, but it's also cases like this, it just makes you go, oh, one, he's dead. So, like, he can't get charged for it because he's dead but also he was charged and acquitted and you can't recharge him because that's like double jeopardy and yep. ugh, just ugh yep it's meant to be helpful but sometimes it bites us in the fucking ass yep Reed said D- DNA evidence wasn't available to the jury at the time of Hart's trial but said if it had been there's no doubt he would have been convicted Sherry Farmer Lori's mom said She has felt the pain of this case for 45 years. Her and her husband have some peace now, but it will never, but they will never have closure. Which I can definitely see, like I said, you do have some peace, but it's also, like I said, you're never going to have closure. One, because it took 45 years to be able to pin this on somebody. And then the person you're able to pin it on, you can't really pin it on. One, because they're dead. And two, because they have been acquitted. So, yes, you know who it is, but there's never really going to be justice. And that's kind of, like I said, that's basically the end of this. Like I said, there's never going to be anything else that really results other than us for sure knowing who the killer is. Because they finally have the DNA evidence. But, like I said, you have probably heard this case before if you've been, like, a true crime buff for a while. Because there have been multiple podcasts that have covered this. I just wanted to cover it, one, because it is a very good case to cover, I feel like. And it, with it being brought up, and then the fact that the killer was finally announced... Definitely wanted to jump on that while it was, so that if you haven't heard, you now have. But yeah. This is obviously not the easiest case to cover because it is about little girls and stuff, so... Sorry for the downer. We will maybe 
tried to make a last call that's not such a downer, but there's a lot of stuff happening right now, but even though we try to make our last calls less um, heavy, yeah, it, it's just, there's so much going on. So we're going to kick you off to the last call. We're, we're going to cover a few current events and then I'm going to try to brighten things up, <laughs> but we're going to kick you off to the last call now. Welcome back to another last call with your bartender Sloan. So I'm going to make like a uh, compliment sandwich sort of situation. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start off with some good news. Um, Alex Murdaugh and his best friend Corey Fleming and former Palmetto State Bank CEO Russell Lafitte, Lafitte? Yeah, I have all have all been indicted for charges related to the Hakeem Pinkney Pink case, which he was one of the ones that Alex Murdaugh was in charge of, like his will and testament and whatnot, and he, if I remember correctly, he kind of like changed the way things were supposed to be doled out and the family was like wait how could he have done that whenever he is in hospice care and unable to talk or do anything or change anything and so that case has been brought forward charges have been brought forward finally and those three have been indicted We've promised to keep you up to date with the Murdoch case as much as possible. It's really hard. There's quite a few things that have popped up recently. And it's just, there's like, it's little small things. So it's like, do we, do we really keep updating or whatnot? But I felt like this was big enough news to update on. And here in the next few weeks, hopefully we can get together like another update case, uh, an update episode going. Because like we said, every week there is something unfolding in that case. So that's the good piece. Now we're going to enter the bad middle part of the sandwich. Um, last week, uh, there were documents released from the Supreme Court that showed that they were going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And we have some very strong feelings about it. And while this is a true crime podcast, this is also our lives. Yes. And this affects every woman in America and our freedom. I don't care what your stance is. I don't care where, what your beliefs are. I personally believe that you do not have the control over somebody else's body. Yes. For the longest time growing up, I was very much pro-life, but even then I knew that I was not in charge of other people's bodies. And so growing up, my mom was always very pro-life and I was like, you know what, for me, I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to affect other women's choices by that. And guess what, guys? That is pro-choice right there. If you are somebody that leans towards pro-life, but you are pro-life for yourself and you believe other women have the right to make the choice for themselves. You're pro-choice. That is pro-choice. And that is something that I feel like a lot of people don't understand is that just because you are pro-life for yourself, if you are pro-choice for others, that overall is pro-choice. Pro-choice gets the bad rap of people just being like, oh, you believe in murdering babies. No, I believe that as a woman, I have no right to tell somebody else, no, you're going to fucking carry that child. No, if you 
for some reason do not want to or you can't you have the choice to go get it taken care of we've touched on it before here on here before about how i am infertile i struggle not that i struggle with my infertility but whenever i was 15 and every doctor visit that i've gone to since then i have been told that my body is very hostile to grow a baby so if i were to get pregnant it would be more traumatic on my body than anything else also there's no guarantee you'd even be able to carry that baby to term to full term which if you go with what like a lot of these laws that are coming out if it, the doctor says that it's going to hurt me to deliver it i am not in a position in the state that i am in right now where i could take care of it to take care of my health the yeah. way that it's being put out is that I would have to deliver the baby, whether it was a miscarriage or a stillborn or whatever. And to me, that is not right. Also, miscarriage can carry a jail by like a jail sentence in that. Yeah, for some states. Absolutely. So this is something that we feel very strongly about. If you feel very strongly about it, too, we highly encourage you to reach out to your state senators, to your state representatives and all of them and let them know that this is not OK. Like it is not OK for them to take control of our bodies. This feels this feels very much like Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Um, there is a like older I want to say it's older, but it's um vice president going against the senate and she's like list one law that is in control of a male of the male body and the person she's asking is like i don't understand the question she goes tell me what law has any control over the male's bot over the male body and he's like that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about life and she goes no we're talking about you having control over a woman's body tell me what law gives the government control over a male body and the truth of the fact is is that there is There's none not one but there are so many laws controlling the women's body that were made by men who don't give a fuck about the women's body i've been living for like the tiktoks on this whole subject because you know how many people have come out there like you understand what this pandemic has basically done this pandemic has made more people more comfortable with coming out as bi or queer in some sort of like sense so all you're doing is telling these women oh you don't have control over your body well psych either i'm just gonna be asexual or i'm going to be with a woman and guess what i take care of the problem myself then yeah and then y'all know that i love to put my tinfoil hat on from then from time and again it's I don't always believe it, but another TikTok going around is how we were all expecting a baby boom to happen from COVID because we were all going to be shut down together. But what facts are showing us is that our death rate is actually exceeding our birth rate right now, which is why some people feel like the government is trying to make it less of an option to have abortions and things like that, because then that's going to make the population supposedly bloom. And I don't think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> like you've made it impossible for us to even survive as a single person. You want me to bring a child in? Yeah, absolutely. Like me and my husband are struggling to make bills meet and stuff like that. I cannot fathom 
having a child right now. Like we would definitely be on government assistance. So you're telling me that you would rather me rely on the government to survive than to do what's best for me and my family and my body. Yeah. It makes no no sense. No, thank you. So anyways, like I said, if you feel just as strongly about this, please, 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 please reach out to your officials, your senators, your, your government officials, anybody that you can get in contact. Yes. Email, mail, snail mail, whatever you can do. If you have time to hit the streets, if you're in somewhere, like if you're somewhere that they are having these marches, go out and show yourself because the only way that we're going to be able to defeat this is by showing the people in power that we care about this. Yes. So, all right. That's the bad part. We're going to close this off with some fun facts. Since we talked about the Girl Scouts today and I was a Brownie Scout, didn't make it further than that, but you were a Girl Scout. I was a Girl Scout for many, many years. I figured we could talk about the Girl Scouts today. So I didn't know, but the Girl Scouts actually started out as the Girl Guides in England. Yep. See, I didn't make it that far on Girl Scouts. We didn't learn that. I literally dropped out after first grade. <laughs> My mom was a troop leader, so um, I was I was stuck. <laughs> you were stuck. You were stuck. The second fun fact is there's tension between the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts. Duh. Girls, Girls roll, are better. <laughs> girls roll, boys drool. Oh, come on now. Girl Scout skills helped out during World War One and World War Two. The Scouts were organized just in time for a huge need for helping hands prompted by America's entry into World War I. Membership was bolstered by young women looking to aid in the war, war effort. And Scouts participated in activities as diverse as tending to victory gardens, driving ambulances, and selling war bonds. That's right. So that's really cool and badass. Young women being badasses. Because guess what? When you men were all fighting, who had to take over? It's not like the com- the country just stopped. It kept moving on. And who had to take over? Women. The women. Saul Base designed the Girl Scouts logo. Okay. The record industry tried to shake down the Girl Scouts. I had never heard this. But in a spectacularly poor public relations move, the American Society of Composers, authors, and publishers threatened to sue the Girl Scouts in 1996 over royalties for song members would use for sing-alongs during campfires. Are you shitting me right now? (laughs) What? So they asked for Girl Scout public groups to pay $250 for each, quote, public performance, end quote. By the end of the year, their copyright infringement penalty equaled $100,000 a year. Bad move. Bad fucking move. Yeah, we're talking about these girls singing the Macarena around (laughs) the campfire. Right? Yeah. Girl Scouts have a special hand signed and promise. Yes, we do. I know that one. I'm not going to sit here doing my three fingers. (laughs) Yeah. Girl Scouts have produced a lot of astronauts. I believe that because Girl Scouts are badasses. Yes. Girl Scouts founder Juliette Gordon Lowe was buried in her Girl Scout uniform. Yeah. You go, girl. If that made you happy, that made you happy. But those are my Girl Scout facts for today. That is our case for today. Thank you for riding along on the Hot Mess Express. We really appreciate you hanging out with us today. If you're interested in seeing more from us, we have all of our social medias. We have Instagram, 
which is completely caught up as of right now. Finally, <laughs> finally, <laughs> we have our Twitter, which is pretty much caught up. I just need to get the cocktails posted over there. Our Facebook is always caught up with our Instagram. The posts just go straight over from there to there. And then we also we have Patreon, which I only have as of now one more thing to post. But I'm in the process of editing. And we it's have several my, things left to record. <laughs> yes. My internet has been a little wonky. So I tried to edit last night and then it cut out on me. So I, I scrolled on TikTok instead because I was frustrated. But it is pretty much caught up. We Like she said, we have a few more things to record. But you have, you have some stuff if you sign up. $2 gets you a bonus episode and... As long as I'm able to edit in time, you get an early release. And those are all ad-free as well. Mm -hmm. And then just depending on what tier you go up from there, you get more bonus content. We also have some merchandise available as well. The easiest way to find us there is to go to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. All of the social medias that we mentioned earlier, they are just tequila she wrote across the board. You can find that through the username. I also have it as a hashtag on each platform, so you can type it in either way to find us. You can also hit us up at our Gmail, tequila she wrote at gmail.com. Send us drink recommendations, liquor idea, uh, liquor recommendations, case ideas. Drinks. Anything like that. If you just want to say, hello, what's up? I love you guys. We would love to hear that too. And that is it for today. Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. Beep. <laughs>